Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoiseshack podcast. This is a conversation we had with architect Mel Reynolds, um, I think it was last Tuesday, and uh, we discussed the dismal uh, local authority housing output. Over the last five years, uh, you may have read about it in subsequently in the Irish Examiner and the Irish Times. Uh, thanks to Mel again for all the research he does and continuing to give us the time of day when we when we ring him and ask him what is the latest. If you want to hear these podcasts as quickly as we can turn them around, they're all available on the Patreon feed, one place and completely plea free. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month and it keeps the mics on and conversations happening. Please, 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 please click the link patreon.com forward slash tortoise and see if there's a level that you're happy to keep this show on the road. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for rating and reviewing and sharing. We rely entirely on you. Uh, I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast with Mel Reynolds. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and uh, we were talking yesterday to Mehmet Uluda um, about the situation in East Wall, about the situation in many communities where we've seen tensions rise in, in, in terms of um, people immigrating, emigrating in, immigrating in. You've seen people being uh, awful phrases. I know, Martin, you had a less diplomatic phrase than that for how when people were saying have these people been vetted uh, but yeah. actually I recall Mehmet himself wrote a piece saying and this is months before all of these most recent tensions where he said we don't have a um, a refugee crisis we have a housing crisis and very much in in that in that spirit we, we, we we've continued to look at it through that lens Martin and we've been looking at it for a long time in, in a country as sparsely populated like you know someone said to you like what we were talking on the phone the other day and I said, like, there's, there's more people in Manchester than there are in Ireland. And That's yet- right. In the, in the whole of Ireland, there are more people in Manchester. So, yeah. you know, the idea that that Ireland is full, no, but we do have a housing problem. I'm not even yeah. going to say crisis or emergency. We have a serious housing problem. Tony. Yeah, yeah, no, we absolutely do. And one, and we're actually delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in a while by architect Mel Reynolds. Mel, how are you keeping? It's good to talk to you. Very good. Good to be back. Good to be back. Yeah, no, uh, it, we now we couldn't tempt you to come so, uh, come from the south side to the north side, but nonetheless, we we're, it's it's nice to see your smiling face. Um, can I start things off and ask you about a lot of the debate that's gone on in the last while? We've seen in terms of that the builders cannot, the developers cannot make a profit, and that that's why they're starting to slow down the actual output. We've seen commencement notices fall off a cliff in the last quarter. Uh, and we've seen the talk of that, well, it's to do with Ukraine, it's to do with supply chains, it's to do with all of these things. Um, I also, before we you answer, I also recall that I think it was yourself who had said to me before that, you know, the they, they, they will build to to a level whereby they can make that margin. So t- can you give me your understanding of, of where we stand now and why we're seeing commencements start to, unfortunately, nosedive? Well, I, I suppose there's there's, a, there's the, the dynamics of the market work in a particular way. So and it's very price sensitive. And, you know, the whole thing about supply and demand when it comes to housing doesn't work like that. It's price, it's price sensitive. So when prices rise, the correlation, the strongest correlation is that supply comes online within 12 months and vice versa. So we know the biggest, probably the biggest, most strongest relationship between price and all the other factors is uh, interest rates. So, and we know, I, I know from looking at it before, over 40 years CSO data in Ireland, 
that new home prices uh, have an inverse correlation. It means the prices fall within three months when interest rates go up. So the real thing that everyone looks at in the sector isn't demographics, etc. It's got to do with interest rates. And we can see where that's gone over the past few months. So that's an external factor. And in this respect, you know, when prices soften, they have a dramatic effect on the bottom line on developments and more so than most people would would realize. I think it's you can illustrate it. You can look at this from, um, you know, I, I think it was uh, John McCartney back in 2015 did an exercise on this very well done looking at land prices. And he was suggesting to buy land at that stage because prices are going to go up. And at that point, he worked out that if it, prices increased by 10 percent, a typical site value for a house would go up by 35. Now, the opposite happens as well. So in, in the main, when you have, you have different types of builders as well, it isn't just one homogenous group of developers. You've got you know, people who are sitting on sites in Dublin. You've got high-profile builders doing high-density stuff. You've got builders down the country who are really builder developers doing estates. So there isn't, there isn't like one group of people who have an agreed agenda on this stuff. But if when prices fall, site values fall and margins are under pressure, that's critical. The other aspect of this is when inflation goes up, it also has a significant effect on bottom lines. So if you can imagine, you probably, you're a typical builder, you bought a site three or four years ago, you spent two years getting planning on it, it's worth a you go into a bank, you say, listen, I want to build this out. I can get 70% of my value and I'm going to put up some cash myself. You go, lovely. If inflation on that, your, say it's a, a bunch of apartments, goes up by 5%, your site value has reduced by 22. So the equity you've put in has reduced significantly. So you can't build as much. Now, when prices soften by 10%, say, pick a number, which they won't, I don't think so. But like, for example, if prices softened even 5%, your site value, everything else being the same, will drop by about 30 odd percent. Mm. So what you have at the moment is you have the uncertainty of our price is going to go up or go down. It's very negative out there at the moment. And you also have significant construction inflation, which a lot of people don't believe. But, but realistically, no, no, Mel, we've had we've had huge inflation yeah. in, 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 in commodity prices. We've seen it, but we've also seen a slight comeback down and but it's not it's you know it's it's not back down to where it was it's still it's still you know if it went up by 150 percent it came down by 50 you know what i mean it, 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 and that's not obviously across the board that's on different different aspects between concrete and timber and what we're trying to use but but nonetheless on the thing what you've what you've talked about is also something we've been worried about and afraid of is the land capture value <laughs> and 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 now that may be coming home to roost by the sounds of it no yeah, well, you have the, the way the, the way value valuations work in that way. You you take what's your sales price, what are your costs, what's your normal margin, and then you have a number at the bottom, which is a, your residual value, and it's a red book. It's the same worldwide. It's the same methodology for it. So it's sort of the the the, the nightmare for anyone doing this sort of speculative stuff is the twin pincers of inflation on one side and prices softening on the other because. Just before I came on, I did a very quick exercise. It's so bad, I've never done it, and I don't want to do it. But if you take, you know, I think it was January 21, the Society Chartered Surveyors did a build cost for a typical apartment of 411,000. That was their sales price. It included a land value of around 45,000 euros, normal margin, et cetera, et cetera. 
If you take that and if you increase inflation by 5%, what happens? Your land value drops 22. If you take that and if you drop your sales price by 10%, which hasn't happened, all of a sudden your land value is down at less than 5,000 euros. So the difficulty you have, if you're developing anything, you're, try you're trying to forecast two years down the line. And you could find yourself, as people did back in 2009, 2006, sorry, 2008, where they were in the middle of a building program and prices were falling very sharply. And all of a sudden, by the time you finish, your land value is zero. You've actually built yourself an enormous financial hole. So I think that there's a combat. Most people I know have been looking over their shoulders since about 2018, 2019, waiting for things to slow down. Yeah, I, I, I spoke to a, a developer. Uh, this is the last time around before when we were in this situation where houses prices were beginning to go down. And I asked him about it and he had just developed quite a huge amount of stuff out here in Ashburn. And he said to me, it's musical chairs. We yep. all know it's coming and it's whoever's left without the chair gets caught. Is that generally the way it is, Mel? It, that's exactly it. I mean, the, my, 100 years ago, I worked with a, an architect turned developer in 1991. And I remember he sat down and he had tried to develop. Frank Hall was a really talented architect. Mm. He was a founder of Grafton Architects, brilliant work. And he's, he tried to develop a site in Harcourt Street in the 70s. And just as he was finished, the oil crisis hit and he's, yeah. he was wiped out. I met him then early 90s. He just put a deposit on a site. It was sort of last throw of the dice for him. And it did really well. Just at the time, Section 23's one beds were £28,500. That's, right. That's right. You are right, Mel. But you he, are right. He, he built 48 of these things and he just got the timing right. And he sat me down and he explained how he was able to do that with effectively no money. And I'll never forget listening to this. And I could feel the cold sweat breaking out. The risk involved was incredible. And he said to me, it was very simple. He said, it's musical chairs. And instead of the, you're taking the, the paper off the parcel, you're wrapping the parcel in more debt as you pass it around. And he said, pure luck. If you're standing and the music stops, you're finished. And he That's had lived right. through it. So most of the, most of the, you know, generational, say there's a number of different families involved in this will have seen these cycles and know the savagery that happens. And that's why back in 2013, there were sites like, for example, the glass bottle site at one stage that was worth 10 million euros. <laughs> because when you, when you do that calculation, there were some sites I looked at and I, every once in a while I do it, it had a negative figure. And that means that even if you were given the site for free, you'd still make a lot of selling it out. So in, invariably, what people who've been involved in this for a long time do is they buy the site, they have their equity in the land, they take that to the bank and say, give me money to build out. They do it in phases to minimize their risk because if the market goes west, they've only, they can let the rest of the site just sit. And they're not paying big interest on borrowings for land because that all the speculation happens in land. So the difficulty we have with when a sales price falls even slightly, it's a much magnified effect on land value. And the land value is basically the security you give a bank for a loan. So it means you can't, instead of building 20 houses out of 50, you can only build 10. So there's an inbuilt break there. A lot of people think it's a decision, and it is. 
But even if somebody was very bullish and they wanted to build out, say they had a team of guys, they want to keep them busy. They want to keep their team together. Is even if they wanted to build out at lower prices, they're limited to what they can output by the dynamics of the way the numbers work out. So there's an inbuilt break on development when prices soften. So that's why something like, for example, a state building program using the outside contractors works really well because you have a guy who is a, a site for 50 houses market goes soft. He can't build them. He's going, what am I going to do with my team here? Let me throw in a tender here for 20 houses down the road. Kildare, Kerry County Council are building them. I'll keep my team together. So you can de-risk the market by keeping all the skills in Ireland. Well, well, we've seen that in, in many countries that have a successful floor where they put a minimum, you know, where they're going to say, we'll commit to 15,000 units per annum on, on from a state state finance position whether it's whether it be a state construction company or a local authority or a vienna model or whatever it is i mean we we look at you know in helsinki they're building a second kind of part of helsinki outside of it and like some of the stuff i heard there is extraordinary they're like i was asking about data centers that the problems they had with data centers and and um we were horrified to hear that the data centers have been connected to the uh the, the community heating grid and actually been used to heat the apartments for free whereas we're we're being told they're going to cause blackouts so you can have joined up thinking if you're if you're you know forward planning on these but to go to get away from that though it's important to get back to the point though so the state are telling us they want to build 24,600 units this year they're now saying we're going to exceed that figure but we also know that based on where we're going into the new year that it's it's actually not going it's, it's we're already behind on where we should be going into 2023 because completions aren't happening commencements aren't happening and it, it's starting to look, feel a bit ropey and some of the da- data that you've actually provided i'm going to say is quite extraordinary over the last number of years mel so you know where where are we looking at and well first of all can we can we talk a little bit about what 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 you've kind of put together over a number of years now where we stand and and local authority output that that's in the last say say for the first six months of 2022 sure yeah no problem uh i mean the it, it sort of every um every quarter the government since rebuilding ireland was launched middle of 2016 they brought out a really detailed social housing update report which is it started out at about 80 or 90 pages it's every project and every location what stage it was at what type was it? An, a direct build, which is, you know, where a local authority or an AHB would go in and employ a builder to build out, or was it a turnkey purchase, which is where they go in and basically purchase a finished unit at the end of the process from the private market? So it's a very useful resource. So I've been sort of tracking this for a couple of years, and you know, it's the official figures. It includes some part five, but half the part five units that were purchased. It includes them. So. It, the report itself doesn't have a couple of hundred part five units, but as an overview about what we're actually for new bills, what we're getting, it makes for quite sobering reading because, you know, in nationwide, what we've seen in terms of local authority bills in five full years, that's first half of this year, Q1 and Q2 2021, from the second half of 2016 all the way up to now, effectively. We've seen a total for local authority builds, which is the local authority contracting it, getting a builder in to build on their own land, is about 5,766. In five and years, in five years now. In five calendar years, which is a useful figure to know. For approved housing bodies, they've, con- they've built 
1,670. Now, the corresponding figures for purchases where the local authority will go in and purchase a turnkey unit, which is basically, it's a contract for sale. You go in, like buying off the plans, you go in, turn the key, open the unit. 3,821 nationwide, and in AHBs have bought 9,500, which is huge. Now, that, that whole turnkey program has accelerated significantly from about 2018 onwards, where it's, it's gone up to the point now where we're, the state and AH, the state and AHBs are purchasing over 3,000 units, houses a year from the private sector, which is a big figure. So we know... And a very, and a very expensive figure, by the way. Uh, well, very, well, I suppose a lot of the rationale here is, well, it wouldn't have happened unless we funded it, mm. which is possibly correct. You know, the difference in areas of low demand, the difference between buying a new house from a builder and buying, getting the local authority to build it is, isn't that much. You know, you talk to people from Leash, Midlands, Monaghan, different places. There's very little in it because site values are very low. You might have five or 10,000 euros per site. Builder will do it quicker. Local authority will spend more time doing it. So in areas of low demand, it, it, there's no, not a huge difference between it. The difficulty is when you look at areas of high demand, which would be, you know, Cork City, Limerick, uh, Galway or Dublin County in particular. And you see, what are we doing here? Now, the, the interesting thing is when you look at the five years in, in Dublin County, which is Fingal, South Dublin, Dunley Rathdown and um, uh, Dublin City Council, yeah. is the numbers are way lower. So if you, I would always think of supply and demand as being the demand is what's your HAP figure plus your you know, headline housing list figure in these areas as well. And we know that's about 120,000 nationwide and in Dublin it's about, County Dublin is about thirty to 40,000. So the total figure for local authority bills in County Dublin is 1667, 1,667, and they purchased 505 turnkey homes. Mm-hmm. So that's 2,172 in total. And for approved housing bodies, built 733 and purchased 3,035 in County Dublin. So it's 3,768. So the AHBs are more active in Dublin. But you can see, I suppose, the thing that I always focus on is local authorities have the staff, have the personnel, have the architects, engineers, quantity surveyors, have an abundance of land, you know, have huge tracts of land, and have the state finance, and effectively have the ability to press the button and do have no risk attached to developments. And they're doing very little. Very so little. Very little has been very kind. In in quarter one and two in 2022, Dunleary, Fingal, South County Dublin, and Dublin City Council built zero. That's correct. Yeah, they built zero. Which I mean, when I was looking at the normally, I leave it till the end of the year because there's a big surge at the last quarter. A lot of a lot of houses are forward counted, and as a result, you can see in each of the data for like Q1 will typically be very light because a mm-hmm. lot of Buildings that have only been complete in Q1 have been previously counted. Yeah, the but forward I mean, count them at the end of at the end of quarter four. Which is, which yeah. is sort of like a little bit of sharp practice. But I mean, mm. you have like the local authorities. The total figure for County Dublin is fifteen for the first six months of this year, and those fifteen were purchased by Dublin City Council. That's it. So if you look at the likes of Monaghan built twenty two, Leash built four. So Leash built one. And they've outperformed County Dublin in the first six months. And, and, but, and when you look at the likes of Fingal, who are sitting on so much land, Mel, I mean, people don't understand how much land Fingal County Council is sitting on. They have no idea. It's it's a massive, massive amount of land. And Fingal is one of the worst affected areas in the country. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you have, you know, the, the total figure, for Fingal County Council is an outlier this for the first six months because there was no new social houses of any type provided there. AHB's built nothing and purchased nothing either. So they've a, a duck egg, they've a zero uh, completely. So, I mean, the AHBs are more active, but that's predominantly in Turkey. So the AHBs in the first, just the approved housing bodies are yeah, yeah. et cetera. They built at, in County Dublin a total of 80 dwellings. 78 of those were in Dunleary, two were in South Dublin, um, and they purchased 304 dwellings. So you can see, like, the state reliance on turnkeys is absolutely massive. So, you know, these figures, e- even to me, I had to go back and double-check them and see, did I miss anything on it? When we, when, 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 when we spoke about doing this podcast, you actually said, I have to go away and look at this again, because maybe I've got it wrong. There can't actually be yeah. that low. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, <laughs> The, the interesting thing is, I mean, if you compare it to, say, last year as being a typical year, the headline figure was 4,806 new social houses, and you think that's great. But when you look into the detail, you realise that, well, in actual fact, 2,540 were purchased from the private sector by AHBs, and a further 558 were purchased by local authorities. So that gives you a nationwide total for bills was 1,440 for last year. And in Dublin, like the interesting thing is the county Dublin, we saw a total of 175 bills in the, in 12 months last year. Mm. So that's it. And Fingal built, built and purchased nothing again last year. So you have like the total figure for county Dublin for new local authority homes is 1,075. 743 were purchased by AHBs and 31 were purchased by local authorities. Yeah. So you're looking at maybe about 302 were built and out of those 175 were built on local authority land. So when you look at the fact that South Dublin County Council and um, Fingal combined own 67 square kilometres of land of all types, which is, uh, and that's actually bigger than the country of San Marino. Yeah. You know, you've you've got it. You we have a serious serious issue here on this. Stuff. Uh, Mel, it's it's beyond that actually, because you've gone further in your analysis as usual, because that's the uh, that's what you do. You've gone and looked at the National Oversight and Audit Commission reports to show what what you know. To, so just to, so we're looking at because we used to remember we used to parse the rebuilding Ireland figures before before it became whatever we're calling it now, homes for all, and, and we'd go through all those, those details. But but then. But the national, the NOAC is as the National Oversight and Audit Commission. They produce reports as well, and it's really terrifying that when you look at it, that what was added in total stock over this five-year period is is up seven point seven percent. That doesn't sound too bad, right? Bear in mind, Ireland has about eight percent of its total housing stock in social housing, which is about half of where the international average is and less than 20 percent, which is what the recommended level we should be at. So so bear that in mind. But only a thousand were added in all county Dublin local authorities over that five year period. Mel, I mean, are we that's 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 going backwards. Am I am I crazy or it feels like we're going backwards here? Well, it, it does. I suppose that no, the NOAC figures are really useful because, again, like they're the National Oversight Advisory Committee. They were set up in, I think, 2014 to monitor local authorities. They audit their performance. They're, they've adjusted their figures. At one stage, voids reclaimed were being massively overstated and they adjusted the totals here on that. So every year, 
around this time of year, they all, they have the previous year's audit done. So it's sort of old news in a way for a lot of people. But what they give you, there's a very useful table in it, which is a very is an absolute measure of activity for local. And again, it's only local authorities. So what they do is every year they, they take the total number of local authority dwellings in the ownership, permanent dwellings in the ownership of each local authority. They add in all the additions to stock from all types. So it's, it's new secondhand purchases, vo- long-term voids reclaimed, you know, part five units, every single type of new dwelling they add into the figure. And from that, from that they take away all disposals, sales to tenants, and also demolition uh, units that are demolished, say, as part of regen or that. So you end up with a figure at the end in December each year of what's, you know, you have January and December, take one from the other, and it gives you a net additions or losses to stock each year. Mm. So it's a very, so I find it a really useful, absolute measure to see what are we adding to stock every year? Because you want to see your position needs to be going up. Um, Now, because I've been tracking it since January 2017, I have the December 2021 figure and the January 2017 one. And if you take one from the other, it gives you the number, right? Mm. So the absolute additions to local authority stock nationwide in that five full year period is 10,108, which is a low number. It's much lower. It's 2022 a year, which is less than we think, but it's still okay, you know, not too bad. But again, it's when you look at the areas of high demand and you look at, for example, the four Dublin local authorities and you see what has been added to stock here. Now, this is from all sources. This is a real you know, sales target. If you're sitting there, what do we, how many bottle tops did we make last year? How many are we going to make this year? So it's an absolute measure of activity. Um, it looks like 999 a thousand. That's the figure you said, which is correct. So on yeah. average, the four Dublin local authorities cumulatively have added 200 additional local authority dwellings to stock per year. The interesting thing though about this is when you look at them individually, Dublin City actually has 268 less dwellings in December last year than they had five years previously. So they've been losing 54 dwellings net a year. Dunleary Rastown have added 35 in five years, which is an average of seven. So you have the two parts of Dublin, sorry, the two parts of Ireland, which arguably have the highest concentration of homeless in in them. You've got the most expensive location in Ireland, which is Dunleary Rastown are actually the the only way to get on the to get a, a, a property here in these two locations is to wait for somebody to die, wait for a tenant. Yeah. That's effectively it. And, so, and, and just I just want to put that in context for listeners. So there's there's an estimated sixty odd thousand people on the housing waiting list. There's there's the same again in HAP, which they didn't consider you know, uh, look, we can t- we we won't get into that today, but look, we we've our own huge problems with half. So if we just took that as a in the round and, and put it out there, you're talking about three hundred years to clear the housing list. <laughs> That's if nobody gets added, Tony. And yeah. nobody gets born and there's no new families. And you know, that's if you stay exactly where you are, it's going to take three hundred years. It doesn't Mel, can I can we get to though right? Okay, so those figures are as bad as they are. And I mean, I, I mean, we talked about the demographic report that's come out now. I I remember, I think it was 2018, Ireland was already tipping into severely unaffordable. We'd already gone beyond unaffordable. Um, what's your take on on how, given the, the situation we have now? I know you've said you don't see a softening um, of, of, of too much because there's so much demand there. But at the same time, we've unaffordable properties, we've unaffordable rents. 
we have some some companies tied into what what you exposed as enhanced leasing many years ago. Um, how do, and then we have people telling us, well, the real problem is the usual line was, you know, we just need more supply. Where when do we start to see this turn the corner? Because I heard the Tonish to say we're we're going to start turning the corner on housing. It's all. What do you think we're anywhere close to 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 turning the corner? Well, it depends on what corner you mean. <laughs> are we going down a dark alley, or are we um, are we are we going some other direction? It's uh, the well, the difficulty we have at the moment is that the right or right, I mean, the turnkey program makes a lot of sense. It could actually work really well when you're falling prices as a floor. It isn't what people want to hear, of course, but if you're if the state is inc- we have to increase this turnkey program if the funds. Are going to go cold on Ireland. Um, in order to keep our bill levels up, the state will have to increase their turnkey program. That, in in as well, will have its own problems in that it will create resentment. People will feel locked out. We can see that already, where the state is going in buying estates, and you have a narrative attached to that as well. But I think the difficulty we have is that the turnkey program is heavily reliant on prices increasing, right and for the same dynamic, because the same issues that, say, a private developer or entity has in building with sales values affecting site values affects the AHB sector. Uh, I think there was an article by Killian Woods a couple of weeks ago where he was he mentioned that Cluet, which are one of the biggest AHB providers in the state, I think they've nine and a half thousand houses under management. They were warning to the fact that they were reaching their borrowing limit, that they basically can borrow to buy up to 80% of the value of their portfolio. Three or four years ago, they were at 50% because the, the turnkey program expanded. They're now to 80%. They had a capacity to borrow to buy another 700 outhouses for memory, something like that. Now, the difficulty is that for, you know, it could be Cluid or it could be Respond or any of the AHBs, that if, the, if prices drop, their borrowing capacity drops. So you have a systemic danger here with prices falling. This is why when I say I don't see prices falling, I don't think they can be let fall because our social housing program, as we've mentioned to earlier, is massively reliant on turnkeys on purchase. Right or wrong, that's just the way it is. Well, right? the state is the state is the biggest player in in state. In- the state is the biggest player. So that the whole narrative about funds coming in, you know, buying all this stuff. In actual fact, far bigger non-household entity is the state and AHBs doing the same thing. But it's massively reliant on values staying where they are. If values drop, now I haven't done the exact detail, but I'd say like a 5% drop in prices would have a serious effect on any of the AHBs' ability to borrow to buy more houses. So in that instance, I think, and the article mentioned that there were two scenarios are being outlined to the state. Either one, they give the AHBs a check for whatever for per unit which i don't think would play out that well because effectively they're they're private organizations that wouldn't be great or the second thing is they increase the borrowing capacity from 80 percent higher which again i don't think systemically would be great so the state's sort of caught in a bind here of our social our social housing program because of the way it's been engineered to be totally reliant on the private sector is subject to the same headwinds that the private sector gets and also the funding model for the AHBs means that you won't be able to buy them. So if 
like if if the funds, it's a bit like I, I say this about the funds, you know, it's what I say to my kids, you'll miss us when we're gone. You know, the funds are there for a reason. They're there, there to re- de-risk the banks. You do have problems with them. There are political issues as well, and there's societal issues with it. But, you know, they we've de-risked the banks. The price the, the, we pay for a, our banks is healthy the, now. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I accept that, Mel. Okay, we that was the choice we made, whether it was but, society. But, but, but hold on, but, 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 but without, get, without getting into that, right, they're there yeah. at the moment. When they're gone, who, who steps into their mm-hmm. shoes or do we not? So the state will probably are the only entity that can step into our shoes because effectively we've no development finance. That's the the real problem that we have out there is that there is no the problem we had in 2007, 2008 was we had an Anglo-Irish bank. The problem in 2022 is we don't have an Anglo-Irish bank. So we don't have development finance at the moment. So we're looking at the state will probably have to ramp up massively their turnkey program. Um, the number of new homes being purchased by households has harbored around 2017 levels at around seven and a half thousand. I think Lorcan Sir has written at length about that. The number of new homes being purchased by households in Dublin has actually been falling year on year since 2017. Uh, Second time have fallen, their purchase of new homes has fallen by over 30%. So the state will probably have to step, which you think is that fine. That's probably okay once we have the money to do it. So we have this highly pro-cyclical model for sort of welfare housing in this state, social housing in this state, that's heavily dependent on uh, tax revenue. And it's not recession-proof. So we have a a systemic problem. We've managed to dig ourselves this big hole, or the state has, by not doing things in another way. I mean, there are recession-proof models. You've got uh, you've got a coulon, they can build on state land, you've, uh, and you've got these massive land banks that aren't being available. So it makes very little sense. And on the flip side of that, you have, like, for example, NAMA, I think in February this year, NAMA had only disposed of 5% of the land that they their debtors owned, that they controlled in Dublin City, the Dublin City area in five years. So this NAMA still has an awful lot of development land which again is at the wrong end of the cycle. So we're looking at land values possibly coming under a lot of pressure here for the reasons I mentioned. You know, a site that was worth X last year is probably worth less than that now because sentiment. So we we have a real problem on our hands. So it really, Mel, if you were to fix this, you wouldn't start from here. This is not the point you'd be starting from to try and fix a social housing issue. Is there an opportunity in this when we're not saying it's going all fall apart, but when this slows down to a point where it's profitable for the state or at least manageable for the state to go in and actually start direct building houses, is there an opportunity to do that in this while land values are low? Well, land values aren't low. That's the problem. And if you're, if if we have to, if we wait for a correction, we're in trouble. They do, the other thing is, like land values don't have to be at pegged at any level for the state to get involved here. If you look at, you know, the the Creek Honaha uh, scheme was launched. I did a few. Uh, did a few scenarios on that when I said, you know what, inflation's going to kill this dead. There's going to be no expressions of interest. And at the time. 
there was war in the media over it because developers were going to get 140,000 per unit. I looked at this and I said, if inflation goes up five or 10 percent, it's dead in the water, won't happen. And due to details, and sure enough, it, it stalled as a result of it. So, I mean, if the state is building and if the state is selling, you just need you just need the funding to, to get going. You're you're basically getting your money back when you sell. Like this is effectively what happened in a, with the coulon was, as far as I'm aware, in Ballymont they uh, were the sites were a thousand euros. The local authority the, deferred, site, the site was a thousand quid each, and they were and the local authority, yeah, and and the local and authority, the local authority deferred, deferred their their contributions of about nine or ten thousand euros. Mm. Coulon did everything else. Owners went in, got their own funding. Okulon went in, got its own funding, and they're able to sell two beds for 143,000 euros. I'm sure they can do the same thing now for about 280 or 270. So, mm. other than the state ponying up for the land and putting in a number on that land and foregoing development contributions, which they probably wouldn't get anyway if nothing is being built, that's it. That's all they have to do. They just have to provide the land. And what you have, like, if you were able to buy, you know, one bed in Dublin City for two hundred and seventy thousand euros. It do, if prices fell thirty percent, you'd still be able to sell them because they're so much lower than mm. what the, the market will do. And you, what you have is you have a parallel market. So, sorry, my, Michael, when you say when when do you start? You start yet? Yeah, start a lot. People say to me, "When's the best time?" It's now a good time to build. And I my answer to them is the best time to build is actually last year, right? Mm. So. It, it's a bit like giving up smoking. When's a good time to give up smoking? Right now is a good time to give it up. So, you know, the, the biggest single ingredient here that's the most volatile is land. The state... Right. Just look, I need, I need to say something for the benefit of listeners. Martin is smoking right now. Go on ahead. <laughs> oh, we've lost mail, have we? Well, Martin, that wasn't directed at you, but... Um, <laughs> Can you hear me? Yeah, we got you. We got you. <laughs> Mal, my mother will thank you. You got me. You got me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah this, we got you. What type of marble ice? It's shameful. Shameful. And him and him a sick man. Mel, can I can I just before we wrap, okay? The, so the idea then is is obviously I'd say, my God, what an opportunity we missed when we could have borrowed. The state could have borrowed at zero percent, and we could have, you know, started some of these programs, whether by whether it be via the the, the Orla Hegarty Dunkirk model, or we with some sort of, you know, Rory Hearn's um, state uh, construction company. Whatever it was, we've missed an opportunity there, but we have to just get over that, get over that, and we have to move on now. Finance is still relatively cheap. The state still is is like. We are a huge outlier in 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 the EU and the OECD with our budget surplus. Given what's going on in the world, we still are, and we're still actually one of the only people forecast next year to run a budget surplus. Given how we're going, I'm going to say it: uh, Tax Haven Ireland has pro- has provided very well for the Exchequer, even though the Silk Report uh, has come out today to show deprivation is worse than it's been. But Mel. Is there a willingness, do you believe then, to actually say that if we don't have the IDA going out and bringing in uh, real estate investment trust and all of these funds, because the funds have said we're not too keen on keep on going. Is there willingness there? Is there availability there to, to actually start producing units in the range of 35,000 a year? Do you think we have the capacity here to do that? Well, the we we do we we well 
I suppose if you look at the Green Building Council brought out a report recently, a 70 page policy document, and in that they were looking at our carbon targets for 2030. Right. And they looked at three scenarios and they said, you know what, if we do business as usual and if we get up to the government's target of 33 or 34,000 new homes a year, we're going to significantly exceed our carbon budget construction well. They said, if you look at looking at our embodied carbon, which is the carbon that's produced in the manufacture of buildings, I think up to 30%, 7% of all carbon in the lifetime of building is done by the time you turn the key in the door. So if you look at trying to reduce the amount of carbon we used in, cons in construction significantly, we're still way over where we should be in eight years. So the only way, the only scenario that we can hit that is to reduce our new build output to around 21,000 with a significant emphasis on right-sizing and reduction of carbon, while at the same time getting the balance of 13 or 14,000 dwellings from a combination of existing vacant dwellings being repurposed and also existing vacant commercial space being repurposed as well. Because the most carbon effective building you can do is no building is refurbish what's there. The one that's the, the most carbon neutral one is the, is the building that is the one that's exists. built there already. Like yeah. if you have a derelict structure with no windows in it, half the building is there already. You're into windows, insulation, kitchens, bathrooms, uh, mechanical and electrical. So the answer to your question, that's a long-winded answer. The answer is we could have, but we shouldn't really do it. We should stick with what we're doing, which is around 20,000 a year, which seems to be the right balance. But also we should be looking at a massive increase in the reuse of vacant buildings, which again is like a Dunkirk model. It isn't a great sell. It doesn't, um, I think it was John O'Hara in a recent Oireachtas committee in February had a particular word for it, but it doesn't have the same ring for a politician as saying, you know, we're going to do 600 houses in Shangana, for example. But it means that they'll actually, you know, 30, 25 here, there, but they all add up. If you look at Limerick Regen, they're doing extraordinary work in a lot of refurbished units and regeneration units there in small pockets. So it's like the Dunkirk model. It, you don't have the same big bang that you have with, say, Oscar, Oscar Trainer or Devaney or the same problems with it. So I think we need to do what we're doing, do it an awful lot better. Do we have the money to do it? If you're building and selling a house to somebody and you're foregoing land value, it's cost neutral to you. All you need is ro rolling capital to do that. And so uh, entities like Okulan get their own finance anyway for it. So all the state has to do is put in services if they're required, which can be very, very cheap, and give the use of the land to somebody like Okulan and sell it on. They've total control on it. But what I can't understand with the turnkey program at the moment is why the state isn't giving large tracts of land hiving them off, giving them to entities like Okulon so they can build out and then sell to AHBs or owners or entities who do cost rental at a much lower price point than full market. I don't know why they're not doing that. But again, that's probably a, just the way things are done and you know the ship is steering in a particular direction. But I think what, what will happen, certainly what I've seen over the last five years, is the ship doesn't turn that quick and quite What's a benefit to us is the huge influx in Ukraine. Our Ukrainian friends have come into the country in the last few months, uh, which will be a, we we will owe them a huge debt of gratitude because that's a shock to the system. It means that the system in place, the sort of you know the bureaucracies will have to change because they have to. 
And um, we're going to see, we will see a corner turned, but what will happen is the, the officials and the departments will have to be pushed around the corner by events as they're unfolding. I think for the first few months of this year, the Ukrainian influx wasn't viewed as a housing problem, it was a refugee problem, remarkably. But now it's a housing problem because they're going to be around for a lot longer. And the brilliant thing about this is they are the pressure that will get our engine moving, you know. So um, I think I would be very hopeful. And I think, you know, we just have to adapt and move faster. I suppose in terms of the policies we've seen, you know, you know, you got Project Tusk now is a bit more topic rather than Tusk, and we need stuff that fast on. Yeah, it's been that way for a while, uh, Mel. I think it's interesting what you said about about uh, redeveloping industrial areas, industrial units, because I think that's an area where we haven't mm, really so looked. It's about commercial units, and, and sorry, and, commercial uh, units. Uh, uh, there are an awful lot of of empty commercial units, even just in my own town. There are a huge amount of empty commercial units that could easily be repurposed. Um, they've been sitting empty for 10 years and more. So, I, 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 you know, why they don't do it is a no-brainer for me, an absolute no-brainer for me. Well, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. There are barriers to that. It's complicated. Statutory permissions are complicated. Uh, I think Steve Matthews and the Green Party took a, a bill that's been banging around for a while. Uh, Orla Hegarty, myself and Lorcan Sir were involved in it early days back in 2017 to try and simplify the whole processes of refurbishing, doing, going for a change in use in an existing building. It's very complicated and it doesn't have to be. So you, you, I think the other way, if you see the market dynamics at the moment, new offices are doing pretty good or have done up to now. There seems to be, you know, older offices aren't doing so hot because there's a higher degree of vacancy in them because they need to be refurbished. There's probably opportunities there to go in and repurpose these. We've seen Tua do it recently on a, um, in an office that was vacant for over 10 years. They converted it into, into apartments. So there are opportunities. And you think about the way things turn is, you know, I, in two years' time, we could look back and say, you know, we had a missed opportunity in 2022 interest rates are still below 3% and now they're at 6 So you don't know what's going to happen. And the best time to have done it is last year. So think about home ownership. It's the same thing. People are looking to buy. They're worried about prices going up. If you can borrow, you know, the average rent in Dublin is 2200 a month, which is, which is huge. If you borrow 350, if you could get 350000 at today's rates on a 14-year term, pay 2400 a month off it, in five years' time, you've paid back 130,000 euros. It's like a monster savings scheme. So you wouldn't care if prices went soft. So, you know, we ha part of this is you have to be practical, see what works. The lovely thing about the O'Coolan model is you don't have to do any pilot studies. They've done it. The, the, mm. the, it's been done it. in 2017. Yeah. All they need to do is, for whatever reason, it's now I don't know how active they are at the moment, but like they effectively do everything. They, they, they are. They're, 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 they're going to announce a few more sites in, in the in the coming months, I believe. And I'm sure you would probably kill me for, for, for saying that. But they are looking, working on other things at the moment. But I do. I, I want to bring this to a conclusion, if that's OK, because what we've seen is a huge failure in local authorities to deliver housing. We've seen a huge reliance on the private market. We've seen an uh, we we got to forget about the lost opportunity of that generation where we could have borrowed at zero or negative interest rates or whatever it was, and we need to move forward now. Um, the the only thing I will say is I recall 
probably four and a half, five years ago when we first spoke, you spoke about the potential, you know, of just changing the the ideas of revitalizing their towns and cities by by looking at the spaces above uh, commercial units, you know, turn, bringing them back into circulation and bringing them back into, into into the fold. All of those opportunities remain. So maybe I'm wrong when I say we need 35,000 units a year. Maybe maybe you're right where we say if we're going to be serious about our, meet, reaching our climate targets, the, the most sustainable building is the one that exists already. Do you, yeah. Do you, sorry, go ahead, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so you're absolutely right. Um I mean, if you look at the census, the most surprising figures in the census, now they're coming out of more detailed information in January. But, you know, six years ago, we had 183,000 vacant dwellings around the country, excluding holiday homes. Five years later, in our, this, on April 3rd this year, we had 166,000. So you think, hold on a minute, we've only had a drop of whatever that is. Is that, you know, 20,000 or less than 20,000 in five years? Out of the inter- the really thought provoking thing is out of that we had thirty five thousand three hundred and eighty vacant rental available rental units on that night, which is a big number. Mm-hmm. Now I you know I, I've been on to the CSO recently to find out do we have a comparative figure for the previous year? They don't. It's a new field, but like if you compare that to the narrative we have, or you know I think on May the first. This year, Daft brought out their Q2 report and there's 851 available rentals around the country. Like, what is what is going on here? Do we have, we need to interrogate these numbers a bit more. Do we have, are they, is it big, is it small? We know the vacant figure for 166,000 is about 80 more than it should be. We know that 4% is a, re, is a normal level of vacancy, we're at eight. So we have, a, there's a huge capacity there for whatever the blockages are unique to Ireland for vacancy there's a huge potential there for really really now there are houses that don't need a change use that are vacant houses and apartments perhaps we have a really really large amount of um short-term rentals that are medium-term rentals out there so we could be building vacancy like we've seen in london where you know a lot of the new build luxury apartments are being advertised for you know medium term rentals for business people rather than longer term rentals so i think you know we need to look at the the data we have a bit more they in dublin city i think oh go back in 2015 dublin city council did an audit of over the shop space within the canals there's enough space they reckon for about 4000 apartments and you think hold on a minute what are we missing a trick here? What do we need to do to do this? So th- there are, we know that th- the existing vacant stock is a is a huge blind spot for policy. Nothing effectively was done during Rebuilding Ireland on this. A bit more is being done at the moment. In February this year, the Oireachtas Committee, I think there was something like no full-time staff in the Department of Housing were dealing with vacancy. I think there were three full-time, three or six full-time vacant housing offices around the country and all the local authorities. I mean, Cork City would need probably six or 12 on its own. So, you know, the whole idea we have, re- everything would improve when you do that. You know, you, you revitalize your city centres. We're making best use of our space we have. You're the, there's no need for service. You know, we're not creating urban sprawl. You know, you'd have higher footfall, your commercial will improve. So you don't have to go into the difficulty with the with the reusing industrial space is they've done it in the UK. And if you just Google human warehouse and look at some of the articles there, mm-hmm. it ain't great. So we do, we have to be normally what happens here is we wait until a policy has been introduced and found to be seriously defective in the UK before we decide to introduce it. 
we need to look forward a little bit, help to buy is the same thing. But I think the, the, if we can allow people, if you look at the figures we have for new bills, and typically in a, in a typical year, self-builders will build between four and 5,000 new dwellings. So they outperform all the main housing, you know, your, your Cairns and your Glen Bays and all this by a significant margin. And they're pretty well positively discriminated against by everyone. Everyone looks down at them, think they're building these palaces outside and the country. But that's a, a situation where even against the odds, people are building, are, have been, are empowered by the fact that they're getting a site from a family member. They want to be in a particular location. They're getting the finance themselves and they're building it. So I think if you were able to do the same thing here for even on corporation land or local authority land, give them the plots, get a plot of land, service it, sell the plots to individual owners, let them away and build it themselves within a certain time frame. Or alternately, do something similar to allow, facilitate people to do over the shop dwellings uh, and look at it and say, let's take one, do it as a test case. What are the barriers? Sort it out. And you'll end up with. And the, the other aspect to this is in a lot of locations, the cost to refurbish an existing dwelling or over the shop unit is probably more than the market value. So you need to, it isn't always about profitability or the state making a profit or doing something that's more cost effective. Sometimes it's just the right thing to do and we need a bit of a help out to do it. So, you know, you might have an over-the-shop unit in Sligo, in Kerry, in Leitrim, in Longford, Leash, whatever. It's great, you know, away you go and bring in the incentive to do it. Now, there, there is a bit of movement on that and I know they've got the, the government have brought out their, I think it's a 30 or 50,000 euros now for the vacant refurbishment grant as well. But the main difficulty with a lot of these things is if you're trying to do a change of use, there's a barrage of red tape. So we need to really simplify that. And that was one of the submissions I did earlier in the year was um, with with colleagues, uh, Orla Hegarty and, uh, and Ono Kofig came up with this simplified system where you can go in and get the much more simple, without any diminution in standards, you just get all your permits in one yeah, go. Like they do. As you've said, and there are solutions, Mel. And as, as Orla has said, there are a flotilla Absolutely. of solutions. Thank you very much for having this conversation with us, Mel. Again, we could go a lot, lot longer on this. There is much more detail, but bottom line, not enough homes for, and, and too many people homeless. And we don't really have a refugee crisis. We really don't have a migrant crisis. We have an ongoing and escalating housing crisis. Listen, folks, um, speaking of which, uh, we will continue to cover and we hope to see lots of you on Saturday at Raise the Roof, November 26th, 1 p.m. in Dublin, I believe, assembling at the Garden of Remembrance. Uh, I will say one thing I want to correct, Mel. He twice referenced Cork City. Cork is not a city. It remains a small town or village, depending on your <laughs> on your aspect on things. And no, no, oh dear, no, it's in, dear, you're in trouble. It's, in, it's important, Martin. We have we have to maintain journalistic integrity and we will not we will not lower ourselves to, to saying that. that well, thanks again. That was brilliant. Yeah, thanks, Mel. And listen, no folks, uh, we um, on, a, on a real strange uh, change now, 
Uh, a 16-year-old was shot earlier in the West Bank uh, uh, following clashes again. And I hate using that phrase, clashes. And there's, But it is escalating, particularly in the West Bank. It has been for a number of weeks. I spoke to Gareth Brown just before we came on air, and we will probably be going to Gareth um, in the morning to, dis- to discuss what is happening in that situation there. So we will hopefully, you know, I know the world of the, the eyes of the world are elsewhere, but we do continue to monitor what's happening in Israel and Palestine. Uh, we will talk to you all as soon as we can turn these around. Thanks for the support. Thanks for listening. And we will be back to you shortly. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber podcast. Subscribe now on page.